Well, folks, it's a real pleasure to be with you here tonight. And I, I've absolutely, I mean, I've been here for nearly a week. Uh, we just finished a youth conference in Wanganui. Uh, I said that right, didn't I? I, I, I Wanganui, excuse me. Well, you know, I live in the South, so I, you know, uh, I'll get it sooner or later. Uh, but I absolutely have, uh, been just overwhelmed with, uh, the reception that I've had, the hospitality and love, uh, and we had an awesome conference and, uh, God worked in a, in, in a mighty way in the lives of a lot of young people and a lot of lives were changed this weekend. Praise God for that. Um, pastor, thank you for allowing me to come here and share my story with your folks. And, you know, I tell people, you know, all the time, uh, the last thing that Tindy Biasi ever thought he'd be doing is what I'm doing now traveling the world sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's funny when I kind of disappeared from the wrestling for a while and, you know, people would contact me. They hadn't seen me in a long time. And they'd say, well, what are you doing now? I'm a minister. And there's this long pause on the other end of the phone. What? Yeah, nobody would figure that. But God had a plan for my life. It just took me 38 years to come to the full realization of what it really means to be a Christian and then to begin to walk in it. So, uh, uh, you know, how many of you actually remember the Million Dollar Man character? Wow, I'm impressed. Right. Well, for those of you who don't, I'll give you a little taste. <laughs> Everybody's got a price for the Million Dollar Man. I got to get that out of my system. I was this villainous character in the in, in what was then the WWF. I was uh, wrestling Ebenezer Scrooge. I was the I was the rich guy who thought he could buy anybody, and of course, it was my job to get beat by Hulk Hogan on a regular basis. Um, but that's who I was, and. I get asked the question all the time. Of all the things I could have chosen to do, why did I choose such an odd occupation? Wrestling's not a normal job. What do you do for a living, Ted? Well, I run around in spandex tights and I hit people in the head with chairs. What do you do? That's not normal. But the answer to the question in a word was dad. I was very fortunate to be raised by a very loving stepfather who came into my life when I was five. Mike DiBiase, DiBiase is an Italian name, son of Italian immigrants. And uh, not only was he a professional wrestler, but he was a national amateur champion, storied athletic career. I knew none of those things when I was five years old. What I recognized in this man was his love. I saw that he loved my mother. I saw that he loved us. And he gave us his name and his love. And I grew up wanting to be just like him. And... I want to say this before I go further. You know, I never know who's in the crowd. I never know who comes. I've already met a couple of guys that, you know, came that, wow, you know, Ted, we've been really big wrestling fans. Uh, but I want to cover all the bases. Um, and although I'm not a wrestler in the physical sense of the word, and I promise none of you will see me in spandex again. <laughs> Horrifying thought. I have come to wrestle with you tonight. Come to wrestle with your heart. And I have the greatest tag team partner in the universe, 
His name is Jesus and he's unbeatable. But if you're here tonight and you say, I don't, you know, I don't believe in God. Let me tell you a little story. I had an encounter with an atheist. I was on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. I, was, I had a speaking engagement. Actually, it wasn't even a, 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 a Christian event. It was a secular event. And I had finished and I was going to go back to my room. I was waiting for a cup of coffee and these two guys are having a debate. And so the one guy, the believer turns around, recognizes me. And I think it's the first time in my life I was ever recognized for being a minister and not a wrestler. The guy had seen me on Christian television. And he said, Ted, can you help me out here? And I said, well, I, I couldn't help but overhear your conversation. So I said to this atheist, I said, is it okay if I ask you a couple questions? And he said, sure. I said, well, number one, I said, you're entitled to believe whatever you want. I said, I'm not here to get in a great big argument with you. Believe whatever you want. I said, but just let me ask you this. I said, have you ever read the Bible? No. Have you read through the Bible? Not really. I know a little bit. I said, there are, there are actually hundreds of religions. I said, but there's four or five major world religions. Can you tell me the difference between them and what they believe? And once again, his answer was no. And I said, here's what you just told me by answering just those two questions. You're telling me you don't believe in a God you've never spent 15 minutes looking for. I said, let's just say for the sake of argument that you're right and I'm wrong. I said, if you're right and I'm wrong, it won't matter. We'll die one day and cease to have consciousness. But for the same sake of argument, if I'm right, you're wrong for eternity. And I said, pal, I said, you know what? You don't owe it to this guy. You don't owe it to me. You owe it to yourself to find out. Excuse me for saying it, but only a fool would blindly go through life believing there's no God only to die and find out he's wrong. And then I told him something. I said, you know what? No, this might make you mad, but that's okay. I said, you don't want to know the truth. What I believe is the truth. And he said, why? I said, because if you find out there's a God, then you're not in control anymore. And you don't want to give up control. I never did see that guy again. And I don't know what happened. But I would say that to anybody in this room. What I can tell you is this, what God has done in my life. And it's undeniable. Uh, as a young man, I had a very strong, childlike faith in God. Wanting to be like my dad, I, I wanted to wrestle, I wanted to play football, I wanted to be that athlete. And people would actually come up to me when I was very young and they say, you want to be just like your daddy, don't you? And I go, yeah, but how do you know? And a lot of them would actually laugh at me and they say, are you kidding? Everything you say, everything you do. You see, I didn't have a big sign around my neck to tell people, who I was. I didn't have a big sign around my neck that said, I love my daddy. I want to be just like him. It just came pouring out of my life. And what I have come to understand as a Christian is that that attitude of heart that drove me to want to be so much like my dad is the same heart I must have for my Savior. Because if that's not my, if that's not my heart, I'm not a Christian. So not only have I come to challenge those of you who don't know Jesus and say, he loves you. He'll do for you what he did for me and a lot of people in this room. I also come to challenge those in the room who say they're Christians. I want you to make sure you are. Because until I was 38 years old, I was a poser. 
That's my term. <laughs> I had an intellectual relationship with God. I have believed the gospel message since I was a very young boy. And the basic gospel message is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he suffered and died under Pontius Pilate, that he was buried, and then on the third day he rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again in glory to judge this world and take on those who have placed their faith and hope in him. I have believed it intellectually for most of my life, but I want you to understand as a brother in Christ that the difference between heaven and hell is about 18 inches. It's moving everything you know about Jesus from here to here. You see, because when it gets in here, it has no choice but to come out of your life. So, I had this strong childlike faith when I was young. And, quite frankly, I, I, was, I was misguided. My dad was Italian, and like most Italians, he was Roman Catholic. And I have a lot of issues with Catholicism. But the Bible still says God judges the heart of man. Only God knows your heart. And I, I was like the, award, the award-winning altar boy. <laughs> Omaha, Nebraska, four feet of snow on the ground on the dead of winter. There wasn't anybody at the six o'clock mass but me and the priest, and he lived there. <laughs> but it was important to me. And that faith in God carried me through a very traumatic experience in my life. When I was 15, this dad, who was my idol, suddenly dies of a heart attack at the age of 45. I moved to a very small town in southern Arizona, a little place called Wilcox. Folks, Wilcox, Arizona has three traffic lights. Thirty some odd years later, it still has three traffic lights. Interstate goes around it. You don't even have to go through the town. Why did I move to Wilcox? My grandmother, my mother's mother, owned a truck stop in this little town. My grandmother was probably one of the most hardworking, godly women I ever knew. So I moved back to Wilcox with my mother and my little brother. And, you know, I, I've just lost my dad. Um, now I watch in horror as my mother, in her grief and despair, falls into alcoholism overnight. I'd go home and hear my mother say things like, I just wish I'd die, I wish I were dead. I have nothing to live for anymore. And in a little town like Wilcox, word travels pretty pretty quick. And so when all my peers, when all the kids that I went to school with found out the new kid in school wants to go to college on a football scholarship, take a look around you, pal. It ain't going to happen here. You need to relax, man. Here, have a beer, smoke a joint, be cool. A little town like Wilcox, not much to do on weekends. As a matter of fact, I took one of my sons there a year ago. It took us 10 minutes to look around. He said, Dad, what did you do here? I said, exactly. But what I didn't do was cave into the peer pressure. I wasn't cool. Well, a lot of my peers were out in the desert getting drunk and getting high on the weekends. I was chasing my dream. I was doing all those things I needed to do to try to 
get that scholarship to go play college football. Many nights I would go out to the cemetery where my dad's buried and I would shine the lights of my grandmother's old car on his grave. And I'd pace back and forth in front of that grave and weep, cry, and pray. God gave me the skill. God gave me all that I need to achieve the goals I've set. My dad is gone, but I want, him, I want that he would be proud of me. Let me show my mom why she shouldn't quit and give up. What I was praying in a very childlike way is, Lord, if you'll give me the desires of my heart, I'll honor you with it. And folks, God's always faithful, always. And it happened that I was the first kid to ever graduate from this little school in southern Arizona with a full scholarship to play Division I college football. Now, if my story ended there, gosh, pat on the back. Golly, Ted, you know, you, you stayed focused. You didn't cave in at the peer pressure. You followed God. You stayed close. You did it right, and God came through. Good job. But it's not the end of the story. So when I got to college, I was 18 years old, and I wasn't scared anymore. It's amazing the difference in the way we act when we're scared. When 9-11 happened in the United States and the Twin Towers went down, people were scared to death, wondering if we were going to get nuked or if it was going to happen again somewhere else. And all of a sudden, all the churches across America are full to the brim. People are running back to church. Oh, God, help us. But as each week went by and nothing happened, well, we just kind of put God back up on the shelf and said, you know what, Lord? Thanks for all your help. When we need you again, we'll let you know. Now, I never said anything so stupid. But in fact, that's what my actions said. When I got to college, what two things crept into my life. And those two things took over in my life and consumed me for the next 20 years. My male pride and my ego. The Bible says very clearly, pride goeth before the fall. Amen. Been there, done that. Ego. Your ego will always, E-G-O, edge God out. I started doing things in, in college that I wouldn't do in high school. After all, I'm a scholarship athlete now. And I remember thinking, you know, I worked hard. I paid the price. I did it. I guess I showed them. Nobody's going to talk trash about me anymore. Can you hear it? I, 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 I. I did everything. I can almost look back in my mind's eye and see Jesus reaching out, tapping me on the shoulder and going, hey, wait a minute, what about all those nights in the, in the cemetery? Have you, have you forgotten so quickly? Yep. Basically, I had abandoned my childlike faith. Just like the Bible says, pride goeth before the fall. By the time I was 26 years old, I had failed to complete college by one year. I didn't go to the National Football League. I had been married and divorced. I had failed as a husband. I was failing as a father. I now had a son from my first marriage. By virtue of the divorce, I couldn't be with him except on weekends and special occasions. Wow, how did I get so messed up after starting off so good? Very simple. I took my focus off my God. But by now, I was a professional wrestler. 
And what I believe God said to Ted was, go ahead, kid. Go get all that stuff you think you want. I'm going to let you have it. You go climb that material ladder of success. You go become that big famous wrestler you want to be. You know, and, and, and somewhere down the road, when you have all that stuff without me in your life, we're going to have another discussion about this. <laughs> and I know as a father that in my own life, I have had to let my boys, I have three of them, I've had to let them go. The one thing I didn't want any of my sons to do was be wrestlers. I loved wrestling, but the lifestyle's horrible. And I knew all that they would encounter. But I also knew if I, if I didn't allow them to go and try, that it would drive a wedge in our relationship. And it was just one of those times in my life where I went, mm, okay. It's the first time in my life I got a glimpse of how much God, how much God loves us. Because if I can love my sons that much and feel that way, doesn't even begin to compare to how much God loves us. And sure enough, well, my son Ted was the one that actually went to the WWE, wrestled for him for five years, was doing really good, made a movie. Anybody ever see the Marine 2? He's the star. And he got hurt, and he was out for a while, and in that five-year period, he got married. Now he's about to become a father. And I think God set him up. So the last two months of, of his wife's pregnancy, he's home with an injury. And the first four months of his son's life, he's home with this injury. Now it's time to go back to work. I don't want to go back to work. And he called me and he said, Dad, he says, first of all, I don't want to hear those words. What words? I told you so. <laughs> and I said, and? He said, you were right. He's the amount of time that I have to give to this company to be a star is not fair to my wife and my child. And so I just want you to know that when my contract comes up, I'm not going to resign. And I was very proud of that. But again, I had to let him go. I mean, let me ask you this. How many... You know, how many of you are parents of teenagers right now? Anybody? Or you have been, you've had teenagers. Isn't it funny how when our teen, when our kids become teenagers, all of a sudden they think we're stupid? <laughs> they think we're clueless. Oh, mom, dad, you don't know what Twitter is. Facebook, you got a smartphone, it's smarter than you. <laughs> You don't know how to work it. My child can do a better job working my phone than I can. My, my grandson. And I think because we give them rules and we give them boundaries, we're just a bunch of killjoys. We just don't want them to have any fun. Don't you just want to grab them and shake them and go, look, you little moron. I've only got 20 or 30 years of life experience on you. I've already been down this road. I know what's coming. And what they don't understand is we give them rules and boundaries because we love them and we're trying to protect them. Now let's take that up one notch. Our Heavenly Father says, I'm only the God of the universe. 
I've only been around for eternity. <laughs> and I've given you a standard to live by. And I don't have my Bible, but if I had my Bible, I'd be holding it right here. Here it is. I've given you a standard to live by. Not because I want to be a killjoy, but that as Jesus said, that you would have life and have it more abundantly. But we've all been teenagers. Sometimes it takes teenagers longer to grow up than others. As a matter of fact, of my three sons, my two younger boys, happily married, married Christian girls, giving me two grandsons and one on the way. We're not sure what that is yet. I'm waiting for the girl. I'm one of three boys. I had three sons. I have two grandsons. One of these days, I'm going to get a girl. But my oldest son, Michael, who will be 38 September, is my my prodigal, running hard and fast away from God right now. And I love him just as much as I love my other two boys. And all I can do is pray for him. So I know that pain too. But you got to let him go. Got to let him find out. And in some cases, that's all you can do is give him to God. And that's what I've done. So I know what that feels like. So God lets us go. So God let me go. And along this journey, as I rose in stature and within the inner circles of professional wrestling and developed a reputation and a name, all of a sudden God crosses my path with this wonderful Christian girl, Melanie, who I met in Atlanta, Georgia. We fall in love. New Year's Eve, 1981, we're married. I don't want to have any more children I can't see. I want to do things right. We start going to church together. She tricked me. She said, okay, Ted, you're Catholic and I'm Baptist. Let's compromise and go to a non-denominational church, which are all Protestant. <laughs> okay. And I hate to say it, but it's the first time I ever heard the gospel preached straight from the Bible. It's the first time in my life that I heard that my eternity hinged on a personal relationship with Jesus. And there I want you to, relationship. Relationship. You see, genuine Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. And if you don't walk in the intimacy of that relationship with Jesus, you're just practicing religion no matter where you go to church. I answered an invitation at that that non-denominational church. This was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, on the campus of LSU. I went forward. I answered an invitation, an altar call. I stood there. I said what we call the sinner's prayer. And I wept. Very emotional experience. But what I didn't do when I walked out of that church was dive into this relationship. You see, it was here. I believed it here, but I didn't put it into action. You see, before you can commit your life to Christ, you have to surrender it first. And you're either all in or you're not in. 
You know, I didn't, I didn't run down to the Christian bookstore and buy a Bible and a devotional and get after it. After all, how do you have a relationship with anybody? You have to spend time with them. Think, think about your closest friend. Think about, you know, and I don't know what kind of winters you guys have here, but think about a winter where, you know, two o'clock in the morning, you're stranded on the highway. You look down at your cell phone, you got one bar left. Who are you going to call? I don't know who you're calling. I'm going to call that friend who's coming no matter what. Well, your relationship with Christ must trump that one. And you have that relationship like you have any other relationship. You got to spend time. One of the men of God that influenced my life greatly, his name was, his name was Edwin Lewis Cole. Uh, he wrote a number of books, and I really believe he was like the father of modern men's ministry. He recognized the anemic need for godly men in this world. And one of the first books he wrote was called Maximize Manhood. But in one of the meetings that I was in where he was up here speaking, he held the Bible out, and he said, Gentlemen, if this book doesn't have lordship in your life, Jesus isn't lord of your life. If the only time you crack the Bible is on Sunday morning when pastor says, turn to this scripture, you're in trouble. You can't have a relationship with somebody that you only spend five minutes a day with. Or the only time you call on him is when you're in trouble. You see, and that's who I was in reality. Because I had abandoned that childlike faith. Reality is, what my actions said was, Lord, I believe, I believe the gospel message. I believe there is only one way. It is Jesus. And I want what you have to offer, but I want it my way. You know, as long as you'll let me be this big star in wrestling and have all the stuff. I didn't say that, but that's what my actions said. You know, I wrestled seven days a week back then. Sometimes twice on Sunday. Now, even though I couldn't go to church on Sunday, if I really had meant what I said at that altar, I'd have got up and I would do what I normally do now. I might, you know, usually at home, actually I looked this morning, but I couldn't find one. I was looking for a a service on television. That's what I do at home. No matter where I am in the country, I turn my TV on on Sunday morning and I go to church about six or seven o'clock in the morning and I get fed before I ever go to church and preach. Cause I want to get fed. That's important to me now. But back then it was all about me. And the really scary thing is I didn't really realize it. So I began to grow in stature, again, in in the wrestling community. And then in early 1987, I walked the aisle again, a second time. I said the prayer again. I was even baptized again. And the pastor said this to me. He He said, Ted, God has planted a seed in your life. He said, I want to encourage you to nurture the seed. He says, because understand this, he said, now you have the devil's attention. He'll come quickly now 
to pluck this seed before it has time to take root. So he encouraged me to get into the word, to get into a good fellowship, get into a good small group of men so I could be accountable. And I'll tell you right now, if there's no accountability in your life, it's not a question of if you're going to fall, it's just when is it going to happen. But see, all those things he was saying were saying one thing, dive into the relationship. You see, oftentimes we say, the devil made me do it. We don't need the devil's help. We're born in this flesh. We're going to die in this flesh. And as long as we live in this flesh, it stinks to high heaven. It is selfish. It is self-centered and self-seeking. And the devil knows that too. But here's the thing, when we figure that out, when we finally figure out that we can't possibly do this by ourselves, and we cry, Jesus, help me, now you got the devil's attention. Now he's going to come because, uh-uh, we can't let this happen. And he will attack you where you're the weakest and where you're the most vulnerable, and he'll wrap it up in the prettiest package you ever saw because he's the greatest liar of all time. And that's exactly what happened to me. Within two months of this Re, second rededication of my life. I got the biggest break of my wrestling career. I get the call from Vince McMahon of the World Wrestling Federation. I'm on a jet to New York City in a limousine to the office of old Vince and he sits up there and he says, Ted, I got this idea and I think you're the guy for it. He said, you know, the one thing everybody hates, everybody hates a guy who by virtue of his wealth thinks he's better than everybody. You know, he looks down his nose at people, thinks he can buy anybody or anything. I started laughing. I said, I can't stand guys like that myself. <laughs> and he said, I think that in you, we, we could create one of our most hated villains ever. And he says, in an effort to market this character, we're going to try to make the public believe you're really rich. I said, how are you going to do that? He said, we're going to fly you everywhere first class. First class airfares, limousine service. You're gonna, every time you get off an airplane, the limousine's gonna take you from the airport to the hotel, from the hotel to the Coliseum that night, from the Coliseum back to the hotel, from the hotel back to the airport. So everywhere the public sees you, they're gonna see that appearance of wealth. Now back then, not everybody got that kind of treatment. Hulk Hogan was our biggest hero. He got that treatment. And the other guy was a guy named Andre the Giant. Well, Andre ain't going coach anyway. 400. <laughs> Seven, four, 450 pounds, you know, uh-uh. <laughs> wow. What an unbelievable opportunity. If I had really given my life to Christ, if I had really surrendered, I'd have been on my knees saying, thank you, God, for this opportunity. Let me use this opportunity to be a witness on your behalf. Let me be an image of you in the locker room with all these guys. There's a lot of things I could have done, should have done, but I didn't do. You see, folks, because the devil had attacked me right where I was the most weak. It was all about me. And because there was no real relationship because it wasn't the priority in my life, I still had that God-sized hole that needed to be filled. 
And so like so many of my peers in the, in the industry, the wrestling industry, the entertainment industry, just pick up any tablo- tabloid magazine and read about it. It's like that old rock and roll song, song, Drug, Sex, and Rock and Roll. We worked a grueling schedule. We would go on the road for three straight weeks, 21 days, 21 cities. Then we'd go home for a week and then do it again. I'd wake up in hotel rooms and have to look at the nameplate on the phone to remember where I was. And because there was no real relationship with God in my life, I filled the void like so many of my friends or colleagues with drugs and alcohol and other women. By the grace of God, I was never addicted to a drug or alcohol. And folks, I'm going to tell you, God will give you enough rope to hang yourself. His timing's perfect. I was traveling the world now. I, I have wrestled in front of 80,000 people at Wembley Stadium, sellouts at Madison Square Garden, been on all these different TV shows, had my likeness made into just about everything, video games. You can still get my action figure, by the way. Don't call, we don't call them dolls in wrestling. We call them action figures. <laughs> you can still get my action figure. It's called the Classic Series. That's right. I'm so old, I'm a classic. And here's the thing you need to know. I love my wife. I love my children. But I was more in love with myself. I was on a massive ego trip. It doesn't get any uglier. So at the very height of my fame and my popularity, WrestleMania 8 took place in Indianapolis, Indiana in March of 1992. And for those of you who aren't wrestling fans, WrestleMania is like our Super Bowl, our World Cup. And it literally is this big. I mean, people come from all over the world. And so after the big event that night, I go out in my tailor-made suit in my limousine, and I hit all the hot spots in Indianapolis with beautiful girl on each arm because I'm cool. Let me tell you, I spell cool, F-O-O-L. I didn't even go to bed that night. I partied into the wee hours. I had that limousine take me straight to the airport. Flew to Detroit, Michigan, checked into the Marriott Hotel. Then I went to a payphone in the lobby to call home and check in. What a nice guy. But I had a big surprise on the other end of the phone that day. My wife. My wife, who never called me anywhere in the world to check up on me because she trusted me. My wife, who bore two children for me. My wife, who accepted my son from a previous marriage, raised him and loved him as her own. My wife, who was at home holding down the fort, doing virtually everything else. That wife now had discovered that her husband was committing adultery on a massive scale. I I, I, I don't want to talk about this on the phone. I'll be on the next plane home. She said, no, you won't. You don't live here anymore. Click. And what do you think the first words out of my mouth were? 
oh God, help me. Now you want to talk about hypocrisy? Oh God, help me. Oh yes, Lord, you're the God that I cried out to when I was 15, when my dad died and my mom was drinking. I went to that cemetery and I cried out to you and you came to me there and you brought me comfort there. Then you gave me the desires of my heart. I got the scholarship and I went to college and I, I abandoned you. And in spite of that, you brought this wonderful woman into my life, Melanie, and you blessed me with her. You blessed me with two more children. You gave me back the son from my marriage. And then you blessed my career beyond my wildest dream or expectation. And I, I, I did it again. I abandoned you. I trampled your blessing. So what did I deserve from God? What I deserve from God is what the Bible says we all deserve. There ain't, ain't enough preachers preaching this anymore. It's called hell. And if there's a heaven, there's a hell. As a matter of fact, if you check, nobody spoke more about hell than Jesus. Here's a couple things he said. He said, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the path that leads to death, meaning hell. And many there enter through. But small is the gate and narrow is the path that leads to life. And only a few will find it. That's kind of scary. In another scripture he said, if your arm causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Better to, better to go through life blind and crippled than to burn in hell. It doesn't get any plainer than that. Jesus is trying to deter us from that place. And I can't speak for New Zealand, but I know that in, in the churches at home in the United States, you know, we, we preach a lot of grace and mercy and I think too much. Now, don't misunderstand me. We, you're about to hear about unbelievable grace. And my God is all of that. But what I'm trying to make you understand and remind you is that we have a loving, graceful God, but his first commandment is, I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not have strange gods before me. He's a jealous God who will have nothing before him. And he's a righteous God who can't look at sin. But now let me tell you about that grace. The next phone call I made was to a man who's my very dearest friend today. I met Pastor Hal Santos when he was a youth minister. I met him just after Melanie and I were married in Louisiana in a gym. He walked up to me, said he'd seen me on television and said, I got one question for you, Ted. Do you know Jesus? Pretty bold guy. That started a conversation and a relationship. And for the next 12 years, this man of God prayed for me. He called me and stayed in touch with me, and I called him occasionally, but doing the stuff I was doing, the last person I was going to call most of the time was not a preacher. But when I called him in my darkest hour, here's what he said to me. He said, Ted, he says, I have been praying for you since we met, and here's been my prayer. Lord, one day Ted's going to hit the wall, and when he does, let me be there for him. 
And in that moment, I realized I hadn't fooled him. That's godly wisdom. And he said, know this, Ted, when you called me, you were crying out to God. Now, I want to point something out to you, folks. I could have called my pastor at home. He's five minutes away. Pastor Howell lived in St. Louis. That's 500 miles away. So why did I call a man 500 miles away instead of my pastor? One word, relationship. As I look back, I realize that what I saw in Pastor Howell was the unconditional love of Christ that he had demonstrated to me. And there's that word again, relationship. It's all about the relationship. Well, Pastor Howell made arrangements for my wife and I both fly to St. Louis. He picked me up at the airport and took me on the longest 30-minute ride of my life to go to his home and face my wife. And on the way, he said this to me. He said, Ted, Jesus said the truth would set you free. He never said it'd be easy and he never said it'd be painless. He said it would set you free. He said, if you will trust Jesus the way you did when you were 15, when your dad died and your mom started drinking, he'll forgive you. He'll restore you. He said, you see, he never left you. You left him. And all these years, he's been trying to draw you back. And I said, but I'm not going to promise you that it's going to save your marriage. He said, because the Bible also says you reap what you sow. There is forgiveness, but there are always consequences to the choices we make. And he said, it very well may be that the consequences you face is you lose your family. He said, but even if the worst happens, if you will trust him through the storm you're about to go through, you're going to come out on the other side of this with a peace the Bible describes as passing all understanding. Now, folks, I didn't know then nearly what I know now, but I knew the truth when I heard it. And then he said something to me. And it was just the timing. He said, remember this, Ted, Jesus is both fully God and fully man. So being fully God, he's the God who put every star in the sky you see at night. He's the God who knew when you would take your first breath and when you would take your last and everything you'd do in between. And he's the God, if you were the only man who ever lived, still would have stepped down out of heaven and died on that cross just for you. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. In this moment in time, I'm looking in the mirror and I'm looking at a man who had been willing to put at risk the love and devotion of a committed wife, a man who had been willing to put at risk the future, the stability, the peace of mind and the well-being of his own children to stroke his ego. You see, when we're in the midst of our sin, we rationalize it away. But what God says is true. He says, whatever is done in darkness will be revealed in the light. And when it is, you see it and you see yourself for who you really are. And it is ugly. I never felt so miserable and low in my entire life. And in that moment, I tried to imagine a God who could be that big. And in spite of the countless times that I had trampled onto this blessing, that he still loved me. 
that he'd still forgive me. And in that moment, my life changed. Because in that moment, I became grateful to my king. And I said, God, if you can love me that much, here I am. I don't ever want to come to this place again. I don't ever want to feel like this again as long as I live. You come on board the ship of Ted's life and take the helm. You guide this ship wherever you want it to go because I'm just coming along for the ride. I had been there before. And here I was again. And there's a proverb that addresses that. And that proverb is this. That proverb says, as a dog returns to his vomit, so the fool to his folly. You know what that means? That means that all of us, we will all continue to make the very same mistakes in our life. We'll keep going back and make the same mistakes over and over and over. We'll do it either until it kills us and sends us to hell or until we realize and finally get to a place where we understand the only thing that's going to change it is Jesus. Statistics, 80% of all the people that are arrested in the United States anyway, 80% end up repeat offenders. The statistics are similar about drug addiction, alcoholism, name something. I want to tell you something. (laughs) There for a while, we you know, it's like every time I pick up the paper or turn on the news, I was hearing about Lindsay Lohan going back to rehab. I don't know how many times she went to rehab, but here's what I said. She's going to keep going back to rehab either till it kills her or until she finds out that the only rehab that's going to work has got to be faith-based. Teen challenge. That's one. Even Alcoholics Anonymous, they talk about God, but they want to be politically correct, so they go the higher power. So if you're in AA, you got to get up every day and look in the mirror and say, my name is Ted DiBiase and I'm an alcoholic. See, my Savior said he came to set the captive free. I don't have to get up every day and say that. Because my rehab was through my Savior. And he set me free. The hardest thing I ever did to this day And folks, I can never tell this story, and I've told it so many times, without becoming emotional and weeping. The hardest thing I've ever done is face my wife. The most gut-wrenching moment of my life. I couldn't take my eyes off the floor. I couldn't look my wife in the face because of the guilt and the shame. but I told the whole miserable truth. And I watched my wife walk out of the room and look back at me through tears and say, who are you, Ted, and where's the man I thought I married? Jesus also said something. I see what my wife was saying in those few words. Where's the guy that took that vow before God and witnesses? To love, honor, and cherish me. Because what I agreed to that day and what I see here, they're not the same. So who are you? Now, I'm going to quote a scripture, Jesus' words. And the first time I 
read this and fully understood it. It literally scared hell out of me. Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, Just because you say to me, Lord, Lord, doesn't mean you will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. For many will come in that day and say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and do many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. Church, who's he talking to? He's not talking to murderers, rapists, and the drug dealers. He's talking to people that go to church every week and they take up pew space. And they don't give God their tithe. They give God their leftovers. And they don't get involved in the ministry of the church. They just show up on Sunday, put in their hour. And quite frankly, golly, you know, Pastor, great message. But if you don't let me out of here in the next 10 minutes, I won't be able to be sitting in front of my big screen when the rugby game starts. Where's your heart? The last time I checked, Sunday was the Lord's day, not his hour. That's what I'm trying for. That's what I want you to understand. It's your heart. When uh, God sent Samuel to Bethlehem, And lined up Jesse's sons. Jesse thought, tradition. The firstborn. Obviously it's him. And God says there, he says, it's not him. God does not look at the things man looks at. The outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And it's like I told the young people this weekend. In everything you do, you got to ask yourself this question. What's my motive? Did I fly all the way to New Zealand to be a part of this youth conference and come here and speak to you tonight? Because God has changed my life and I now am passionate about the gospel and I want to go everywhere he sends me. Am I doing this for the right reason? Or am I doing this because... Everybody's going to think I'm a pretty cool guy. This will look good on my web page. It's about motive. I've lived in Mississippi now for, gosh, 30 years. Man, I'm old. (laughs) And Mississippi's, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of hunter, a lot of hunters in Mississippi. I know guys. I mean, I know guys. I mean, they, 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 I mean, they, they plan their calendar around deer season. You know, they go out and they buy the, they get the latest camo, the all terrain vehicles, you know, the, the whole deal. They join hunting clubs and, and there's nothing wrong with any of that. But my point is this. They spend all this money and they plan all this stuff. I mean, it's like, Wow, but then on Sunday morning when the offering plate comes by, all of a sudden they got deep pockets and short arms. They give God the leftovers. And you know what I tell all those guys? Keep it, pal. God doesn't want your leftovers. God expects and deserves and should get your first and your best. Motive. 
I don't know what the statistics are here. And it's been a while since I've checked these at home, but 10% of all professing Christians in the, in, in the United States don't go to church anywhere, but they'll tell you they're Christian. 20% of any church, irregardless of denomination, 20% do 80% of the work in the church. Now, here's the guys need to listen up. 80% of the 20% are women. All those guys are out hunting or sitting in front of the TV with a clicker. The worst of all, 90% of all professing Christian and Christians in my country have never led a single soul to Christ. But they all think they have their ticket punched and they're going to heaven. They better think again. That's what I'm trying to share with you. Until I was 38 years old, this was me. The casual Christian. I wasn't even, I wasn't even that. And it's easy. It's easy for us. It's, it's part of who we are because we live in this flesh every day. We have to make this decision daily. Even though I serve God now with my life and I'm an ordained minister and the main, the main focus of my life is ministry, I still, I still at times get so busy, pastor. We get so busy doing the work that sometimes it starts interrupting our time with God. And every now and then God's going to go, Hey, remember me? Am I right or not? That's just human nature. Every now and then God's got to kick us in the seat of the pants and say, now, you know what? You're doing this for me, but if you had just spent a little time, more time with me, I can make it a lot easier. So understand, as I share this with you, that I'm sharing this out of the conviction of my own heart. I'm not talking down to anybody. Far be it from me. But I believe it's the warning shot. Remember what Jesus said? Oh, my gosh. He said, I wish that you were hot or cold. But because you're lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I'm going to tell you something. If God doesn't judge my country, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Abortion on demand. A bunch of real wise Supreme Court judges just made gay marriage legal. And if I say anything about it, I'm a bigot. They can throw me in jail. I don't care. I am not going to compromise the truth. Two days after I confessed these things to my wife, Pastor Hal asked Melanie and I to go with him and his youth group to a youth conference in Chicago. And we said, sure. So I boarded a bus and took a 500-mile trip from St. Louis to Chicago. And on the way up there, Pastor Hal gave me this little blue book by Edwin Lewis Cole called Maximized Manhood. And it speaks of the characteristics of a real man. Basically, Dr. Cole says genuine manhood is synonymous with Christ-likeness. In other words, the more Christ-like you are in character, the more man you are. A real man is a man of strong character and integrity. A real man is the priest in his home. It's his first obligation. A real man is only as good as his word, and if his word's no good, he's worthless. 
And of course, as I'm reading this book, I wanted to crawl under a rock. And as I read this, God spoke to my heart, and it was like the slap in the face. It was like the wake-up call. Ted, you were a bigger man when you were 15 years old, when you cried out to me in that desert cemetery than you are right now. And right now, you got everything you thought you ever wanted. And what do you have that counts? Nothing. We get to Chicago and I walk into this big ballroom, 1,500 teenagers. Now, why was I there? I had confessed to God, Pastor Hal, my wife. There wasn't anybody else to confess to. And know this, there are no coincidences with God. The only divine appointments, there ain't a, there ain't a soul in this room here right now that's not supposed to be here. And when I walked in the room, all these kids, that was our demographic. At that time especially, teenagers, biggest demographic. What better place for God to put a guy on an ego trip than in front of a crowd that's going to recognize him more than anybody? And back then, you know, I had highlighted blonde hair and a dark tan. I stuck out like a neon sign. <laughs> and I heard it ripple through. The, there's Ted DiBiase. There's the million-dollar man. What's he doing here? Good question. Now, the main speaker at this youth conference, this is this is great. His name's Reggie Dabbs. When Pastor Ben picked me up at the Auckland Airport, he had just seen Reggie Dabbs. Reggie Dabbs had just been here for a conference. And he he stopped and talked to him. He says, who are you waiting for? He said, Ted DiBiase. He says, oh, yeah, I remember Ted. Yeah, I guess you do. Why was I there? For the invitation. I had already confessed. I was already broken. But God put me in that place because I was a man who had an ego problem. Basically, what God was saying to me is, okay, I've I've seen your tears and I've heard what you have to say. Are you willing to get up and go forward in humility in front of 1,500 wrestling fans who think you're a star from television? And when Reggie gave the invitation, I was the first guy out of my seat. I beat every kid in the building to the front of the room, and I fell on my knees, put my nose in the carpet, and cried like a baby. And, gang, I haven't been the same since. You see, God had me in a place where he wants all of us at some point in time, willing to run to him with reckless abandon, not caring what a soul thinks because nothing else counts. Finally, I was there. I remember laying there and crying, and, and the kids, the teenagers, they came up. And they picked me up off my face, hugged my neck. They were crying. I was crying. I'll never forget that. I mean, you know, again, we're all the same in the eyes of God. It was a life-changing day. It was the day I really surrendered. And that's a miracle. But there's one more miracle in the house that day. My wife came to me. My wife, who was extremely mature in her faith. My wife, whose faith had grown throughout our relationship. Who had been extremely humiliated. You see, I was sure it was over. And she said to me, she said, Ted, I'm not going to make you a promise I can't keep. 
I don't know if I'm strong enough. But I serve a God of restoration, not divorce. I don't care how many times I tell the story. I can't do it without being emotional. No one has demonstrated to me more than my wife the unbelievable grace of God in Jesus Christ. She goes, I won't promise you anything. She says, but I want to believe you. I think you're really sorry. I think you really want to be a man of God. I just, I'm just not sure you're man enough. She challenged me. And she goes, I might leave next week. I might leave two months from now. I, I don't know. I, all I know is that I want to try to be obedient. And that's the word she used to this still small voice in my heart that says, give him another chance. And I want you to understand that my wife's willingness to try is the catalyst for who I am today. I was in shock. I was overwhelmed that she would even try. And having just read that book, I looked at my wife and I said, if you'll give me this chance, I'll become the man you thought you married. I will become the spiritual leader in my home. I will become a man of character, strong character and integrity. And God will in one day. I'll regain your trust and respect. And that was March 1992. This New Year's Eve, Mel and I will celebrate our 34th year of marriage. You know what? God didn't just fix it. The relationship that I have with Melanie today is far greater, far deeper. She is my very best friend. She, there's that song, and every time I hear that song, I cry too. I'm just a big crybaby. <laughs> the wind beneath my wings. I travel and I speak. I love FaceTime. I've been here for about a week, but twice a day. I can look at my wife face to face and we pray together. And I want you to know that. God will take your mess and he'll make it a message if you let him. And I don't care what you're going through. I don't care how miserably you failed, how many times you failed. There's a God who will forgive you and restore you if you ask and you mean it. Again, I never dreamed in a million years that I would be doing this. If you told me 25 years ago that I would be in Wellington, New Zealand, preaching the gospel, I'd ask you what you were smoking. (laughs) And I'm not really a million-dollar man. I don't have a big, you know... Fancy banking. As a matter of fact, I walked away from the security of this business of wrestling. I could have stayed on. I could have stayed on in other roles behind the scenes and stuff. They'd have made a place for me. But in obedience to God, in the year 2000, I stepped out of that security into full-time evangelism. Folks, I can't, I couldn't tell you what I'm going to make next month. 
next year. For 15 years, I have depended on God to open doors of opportunity. And for people who believe in what I'm doing to support me. And for 15 years, God has showed up right on time. Every now and then, I wish he'd show up early. <laughs> you know, and all the pastors know what I'm talking about. But he's never late. And no, I don't give three nickels about being famous. All it means to me now is an opportunity to share the gospel. What do I have? I have the love and respect of my wife. I have the love and the respect of my children. And I have the privilege now of watching my grandchildren grow up. I never in my life thought I would look forward to be being called grandpa. But it's great. But I think back about that. I think back about that moment in time when I had this a decision to make. And I thank God every day that I made the right decision. Because there's a lot of my peers that didn't make that decision. There's a lot of guys that I went down that road with that are now dead because of drug and alcohol abuse. There's a lot of guys that are still alive, but they've lost everything. Their families, their money. There's one guy, if you're a wrestling fan, you know who Lex Luger is. Lex Luger's, his character was like a narcissist, but he really was a narcissist. I mean, Lex at one point was so arrogant, you could hardly get him to talk to you. And Lex is one of those guys, when I got saved, that said, ah, you know, Christianity, weak-minded people that need a crutch. He didn't buy it. Of course, he never said that to me. It gets back to you. Well, fast forward. Lex ends up losing his family. Falls into an affair with someone that was known as Elizabeth. She was part of the wrestling scene. She overdoses and dies in his arms. The police come. They find a closet full of steroids. Enough to put him in jail. Sitting in the county jail in Atlanta, Georgia, he got saved. A year later, he and I, or two years later, he and I are on a like a Christian cruise. It was a cruise specifically, I mean, a cruise ship full of Christians and Christian artists, and and we were both speakers. And Lex gets me off. He says, "I got to, I got to talk to you, Ted." And he said, "I need to ask you to forgive me." I said, "Why, Lex?" I knew. I wasn't going to let him know. He said, back when you got saved, he says, I was your worst critic. He said, maybe if I had listened then, I wouldn't have lost my family and maybe Elizabeth would still be alive. Can you forgive me? I said, who am I to not? You know, it used to be I couldn't get him to talk to me. Now, when he calls me, I have to look at my watch and make sure I have time to take the call because now I can't get him to shut up. That's the difference that God will make in your life. So I want to ask you that question tonight as you sit in this room. Do you know Jesus Christ? 
like I told that atheist. Are you willing to take that risk? I'm sorry, but only a fool would go through life blindly believing there's no God to only find out they're wrong. And the, and, the, and the Bible says, today is the day of the Lord. And Jesus says to you, if you're here and you don't know him, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll open the door, I'll come in and I'll sup with you. And he'll do in your life what he's done in my life and so many others, if you just let him. As the Bible says, God is no respecter of person. In other words, he loves us all equally. The next question I'd ask is, maybe through Ted's story tonight, maybe God has kind of given you the nudge and said, hey, you know what? We got off to a good start, but you've allowed the busyness of your life and the culture that we're in and all that's around us to distract us. You've let it choke out what we once had. Maybe today's a day where you need to drive the stake in the ground and rededicate your purpose to that relationship. I gave an invitation in a little Mississippi town called Meridian about a year ago. A little church, a little Baptist church, maybe a hundred people. A 70-year-old white-haired deacon answered the invitation and came up, threw his arms around my neck and says, I've been playing church all my life. I need to be saved. Wow. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're just dealing with a sin. You know, when we pray from the heart, God will forgive us. But sometimes we're in bondage to things. There were, there were a number of times when I got on my knees in a hotel room and prayed and said, God, I'm never going to do this again. But I did. But it wasn't until I confessed to God and my wife that I was set free. Maybe that's you. Maybe you don't need just forgiveness, but you need to be delivered from bondage. Maybe that's what it takes. I don't know. But you do. And God knows. And then the last question I'd ask is this. Are you sitting in this room tonight in bondage to bitterness? I know that in a lot of the churches that I speak in now, because of the ministry that my wife and I do together, and when she talks about forgiveness, and we, we focus in on this, it's I'm amazed at how many people are walking around angry and bitter. Let me tell you what my wife says about unforgiveness, bitterness. When you hang on to it, it's like drinking poison and expecting somebody else to die. The only one suffering from it is you. And what you all need to understand is with God, forgiveness is not optional. We don't forgive because we're asked. We forgive because it's commanded. We are to forgive as we've been forgiven. 
And I know there are things I can, I mean, my gosh, there are things that I'm going to share a story with you in a second. But there are things that in our flesh we can't seem to let go of because they're so devastating. But in God's strength, all things are possible. I shared this in a church in the Bronx a year ago, I think. And a young black fellow stood to his feet like this. I wasn't finished. Tears rolling down his cheek. Basically like saying, I'm in agreement with you, Ted. And I gave an invitation and he came up with everybody. And I prayed with people as a group and I play, prayed individually with some folks and, and he just waited. He waited till everybody left and he came to me and he said, I wanted you to know, Ted, that finally today, through your message, God has given me the strength to forgive. And when he said, finally, I understood that this had been watered many times. He'd heard the message before. I just happened to be the guy. It wasn't me. But he said, I want you to understand what I have forgiven. And I didn't see this coming. And it blew me away. And I'm about to blow you away. He said, you see, I'm from Rwanda. And he said, in my country, there was all this ethnic cleansing going on. And these militiamen came to our village. And they came into my home and they held me. And they forced me to watch them rape my wife and kill her and my son. That's the last thing I thought I was going to hear. And I threw my arms around his neck and I wept. And all I could see in my mind was my wife and my, and my boys. And I said, God, I couldn't do it. And that quick, God spoke to me and he said, not in your strength, but in my strength, all things are possible. And folks, I want to tell you something. I watched that young man walk out of that church that day with a different countenance, and I marveled at my God. Here's what I know. No matter what you need, it's in the house. And his name is Jesus. Because he says, wherever two or more gather in my name, I am in the midst. So he's here now. And he can answer all of your needs. If you just ask. So I would ask all of you right now, if you would, to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. And I'm going to pray a prayer. And I don't necessarily want you to pray my prayer. What I want you to do is I want you to speak to the Lord from your heart. That's what he wants to hear because he knows your heart. Speak to him. Listen to what he has to say. And then I pray that you would have the courage to respond accordingly. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, I I come to you now. And Lord, I confess to you I'm a sinner. I know tonight, Lord, that all I ever need in life, the answer to every problem can be found in one place, and that one place is in you. Lord, I'm tired of running. I'm tired of hiding. I'm tired of looking into the mirror and not liking the reflection I see looking back. Tonight, Lord, 
I ask you from the bottom of my heart to search my heart. Reveal to me any unconfessed sin in my life. That I might confess it now. And I ask you, Lord, to forgive me. Lord, forgive me. And in this moment, come into my life. Not only as Savior, but Lord. Lord, I ask tonight that you would forgive me. Forgive me, Lord, for allowing the busyness of my life and the cares of the world around me to choke out what we once had. Today, Lord, I ask you to restore in me, as David said, an upright spirit. Lord, today I pledge that from this day forward, nothing will be more important to me than my personal relationship with you. Lord, I come tonight and I ask you not only to forgive me of this sin, but deliver me from its bondage and show me what I must do. If it takes more than just confessing to you, then so be it. Just let me know. Lord, and I come tonight and ask you to deliver me from the bondage of bitterness and anger. And I confess, Lord, that in my own strength, I haven't been able to let this go. It's too big. But I will believe tonight, and I do believe tonight, that in your strength all things are possible. And I believe, Lord, through your strength... I can be free, free of the bitterness and free to have the relationship with you that I know that you want with me. And now, Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for hearing every cry, prayer, and plea in this room. I thank you, Lord, for your promised forgiveness. I thank you for restoration. I thank you for deliverance from bondage. But most of all, Lord, I thank you for loving all of us enough to die at Calvary's cross for my sin and the sin of all this world. And I pray this prayer in your precious, matchless name, the name that is above every name, the name Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, folks, if you just do me a favor, this is something I do. If you would close your eyes and bow your, bow your head still for a moment, I want to give you a moment in your own prayer. And I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions. And all I want you to do is raise your hand. This is between you and me. And with eyes closed and heads bowed, the first question is this. If you happen to be here tonight, you have never made a decision for Christ. You've never asked him into your life. But tonight, you did for the very first time there's anyone here that's made a first-time decision for Jesus, would you simply raise your hand in the air so I can acknowledge that decision? God bless you. Anybody else? All right, second question. 
if you're here tonight, and for whatever reason, and they are numerous, but God has impressed upon you that you need to get down to the nitty-gritty. You need to dedicate yourself to the purpose of that relationship. If that's your prayer tonight, would you raise your hand so I can acknowledge that decision? Several hands. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. The last is a two-part question. The first part would be this. If you're seeking not only forgiveness tonight, but you're in bondage to something, a habitual sin, and you're saying, Lord, I need to be delivered from this. If that's you, would you raise your hand so I can acknowledge that decision? God bless you. God bless you. Bless you. Bless you. Bless you. Thank you. Last part of that question. If you're sitting here tonight, and for whatever reason you're in in the bondage of bitterness, you've been hurt real bad, and you can't seem to in your strength let it go, and you're saying, Lord, tonight I'm going to believe you. If that's you, would you raise your hand so I can acknowledge those decisions? God bless you. God bless you. Bless you. Bless you. Bless you. Okay, folks, look up here. As I shared with you earlier, God took me all the way to Chicago, Illinois, put me in front of 1,500 teenagers to see if I would humble myself. As scripture tells us, the beginning of all genuine repentance is humility. And boy, when God humbled me, he humbled me. And I've never been the same since. So I'm going to challenge you right now. Kind of like Reggie challenged us. If you prayed that prayer with me and you raised your hand for any one of those decisions that I would like for you to step out of your chair And I'd like you to come up to the platform here right now because we're going to pray one more time. That takes a little courage. Would you come? As they're coming, I share this one other story. You'll understand why. Another hero of the faith for me is a Assembly of God pastor named Tommy Barnett, Phoenix, Arizona. And he shared this story with me about a young man that was in his service and he gave an invitation much like the one I just gave. And this young teenager stood to his feet and he said, Pastor, I believe you. I believe Jesus is the only way. But I'm not going to come up there today and be a hypocrite. I'm a young man. I got a lot of living to do. He says, the things I want to experience in life that I know God won't like pastor told him, he said, son, what you're saying is that you recognize the truth and you're willfully going to sin. That's called testing God, tempting Christ. And he said, there's nothing that you could do that's more dangerous. The Bible tells us we're not guaranteed tomorrow. You may never have this opportunity again. Today is the day of the Lord. This young man wouldn't listen. 
He turned, he walked out of the church, he climbed in his car, a convertible with the top down. And 10 minutes from that church, as he crossed a busy intersection in Phoenix, Arizona, a car ran a light and, and jumped a curb and went airborne, took his head off. 10 minutes after he left that church, he was dead. And I could actually tell you a few more stories similar to that one. They're all about people who came to a place in time where they had an opportunity to get right with God. They passed it by and they never had another opportunity. I always share it in case. I know sometimes it's hard. I I know there were times when I sat in church under conviction. And I didn't go forward, not because I was intentionally wanting to go out and have fun. I was just a coward. But if you're sitting in your chair now and maybe your heart's beating fast and your palms are sweaty and something inside of you is saying, go. That's the Holy Spirit. Please don't put off another moment what you know you need right now. And you might maybe, maybe you say, well, it's just not, it's not that a big a deal. Well, little deals become very big deals. But the bottom line is obedience to God. So is there anybody else for any reason that needs to come up here before we pray again? Anybody? God bless you, son. That's awesome. Praise God. Anybody else? Okay. That's awesome, man. Give him a hand. That's That takes courage. And know this. If you can't do it here where everybody is for you and is going to applaud you, you're certainly not going to do it out there. This is the place. So God bless you, son. God bless all of you for whatever decision you've made today. Every time I see this, I see me. Your standing here says to me that you heard God's voice in your in your heart tonight, and in obedience you've responded. And God honors obedience. So here's what I'd like to do: if everybody else would stand with me, and if somebody here happens to be a loved one or a personal friend, and you want to come stand with them, lay hands on them, and pray with them before we pray, then please feel free to come up here with them now. God Father God we the body of Christ assembled here in your sanctuary Lord we come to you now and stand on your word Lord you told us that 
two or more of us come together in agreement, asking anything as pertain to the will of the Father, that you would hear our prayer, that you'd grant our request. So, Lord, we come, and we lift up our brothers and sisters who have come forward tonight in obedience to your voice in their lives, some for the first time, say, Lord, forgive me, come into my life. Some have come to rededicate their purpose to that relationship. Some have come bearing the burden of a bondage to sin or bondage to bitterness. And Father God, your word tells us that you are need, you know our need even before we ask. That you know us so intimately that you know every hair on our head. So, Lord, we simply say and ask you in Jesus' name to touch each life tonight as only you can. To meet each need as only you can. To break the bondage of addiction, to break the bondage of bitterness. Lord, to bring a greater measure of faith But in each one of these, Lord, that you would touch them right now and let them know that you have heard their cry and their sin is not only forgiven, but your word declares forgotten, never to be remembered again. Lord, and we pray that you would strengthen them. That in the coming days, Lord, you would cross their path with those that can help them walk this walk, encourage them. And Lord, we come against the enemy, the enemy that would tell them right now that this isn't real, that they're a loser, that they'll never make it, that they're no good. We bind the enemy by the authority of the name of Jesus Christ and the covering of his blood. We cast into the pit of hell. And Lord, that as they go and lay their head down tonight on the pillow, that you'll give them restful sleep. And they'll wake up fresh tomorrow with a new energy and a new vitality to walk out your perfect plan and purpose in their life. And Lord, even if they don't know what that is yet, that you would begin to reveal it to them cross their path with like-minded people that will help them walk this walk. Lead them to a church if they don't have a church home, perhaps this one. And Father God, as they go from this place and as we go with them, that you would continue to open our spiritual eyes to see the path that you have set before each of us. Lord, to open our ears to clearly hear your voice above the clatter of a dark, dying world. Help us all, Lord, to be the salt and light in a dark, dying world that you've called us to be. That we might boldly proclaim Jesus to the world. And now, Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, 
because all the victories represented at this altar right now were won 2,000 years ago at the cross. And the praise and the honor and the glory are yours and yours alone. And we give it to you now and we thank you for it. And once again, Lord, we pray this prayer as we pray every prayer in your precious matchless name. The name that is above every name. The name Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.